From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. Payment for order flow, I think the first thing to get out on the table is it is entirely legal, legitimate, you know, SEC recognized and approved. So I know sometimes terms kind of take a life of their own and people think, oh, you know, there's gambling in the casino. Oh, pay, payment for order flow, that, that's that got to be uh, terrible. So th- this is something that's been uh, around for a, a long time. That was Ira Hammerman, the general counsel of SIFMA, an industry trade group that represents the brokerage and financial services industry, talking about payment for order flow, a controversial practice that gained widespread attention and scrutiny, including a congressional hearing following the GameStop episode earlier this year. Ira talks about how a trade group like SIFMA works with its industry members to share views with policymakers and regulators, both domestically and internationally, on issues that affect them. We talked to him about what the SEC may do here, and also on related issues like gamification of trading and the standard of care that brokers owe their clients, particularly under a new regulation best interest, and how that compares to the standard of care, for instance, provided by investment advisors. It's a confusing and controversial area of financial regulation, and it's made more confusing by the fast-changing landscape of the brokerage industry. We ask Ira to explain and discuss. My returning co-host today is UT Law student Sloan Ungerman. Ira, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. And let me introduce my co-host, a former student, my current TA in L3 in the UT Law School and a returning co-host, Sloan Ungerman. Sloan, welcome to back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Ira, you've been the general counsel of the industry organization SIFMA for a really long time. And if LinkedIn doesn't lie... You joined 17 years ago, and before that, you were a partner at a law firm for an equal amount of time. That is only two jobs, which is very unusual by today's standards. Can you tell us how that came about and your switch and the longevity of the two organizations? Sure, Scott. And again, it's great to be with you today. I've had two jobs and survived two mergers uh, at each of those jobs over these uh, 34 plus years. So, uh, as you noted, I was a uh, associate and then partner at the old Rogers and Wells law firm, which merged with Clifford Chance in the year 2000. And I stayed at the merge firm for about four or so years. And then a wonderful opportunity appeared for me to join what then was the SIA, the Securities Industry Association. And that's the job that uh, you and Lincoln refer to from 2004. And then the SIA merged with the Bond Market Association in 2007 to create what today is SIFMA, the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association. Okay, so I stand corrected. You've had four jobs. You fit right in with the millennials. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to be talking today uh, about what I believe to be the rapidly changing state of the brokerage industry. And uh, you're going to be doing that from your perch at SIFMA. Let's just start there. Can you tell us uh, what SIFMA does, what it is, its mission, why it's important, who its members are? Tell us about SIFMA. Sure. So SIFMA is a trade association. So what that means is we have members who pay dues to SIFMA. And as a trade association, we represent their interests in Washington, D.C., for example, in front of legislators, in front of federal regulators, 
but we also represent their interests across the country with state securities regulators and its state legislative bodies, and even internationally, as so many of our members have global operations and there are regulators uh, outside of the U.S. So it really is a local, national, and international trade association. And our roots are fairly deep at SIFMA. We actually go back almost 110 years ago, Scott, to 1912, when a trade association called the Investment Banking Association was established. And you can follow the lineage of the IBA in 1912, and that's what brings you to SIFMA today. The types of members that we have are really in a couple of basic categories. First are broker-dealers. Next, you would have investment advisors. And then a third bucket would be banks and other, let's call them SIFIs or GSIFI uh, type uh, institutions, globally systemically important financial institutions or even those in the US, but all have a, a bank regulatory uh, theme. And while, while many of the members are, I'm sure, household names to you and your listeners, others may be firms that are just smaller or have different business models. So literally, there are hundreds of uh, broker-dealers that are SIFMA members and a wide variety of asset managers with different business models, as well as all the major banks. So one question I have for you as a current law student is, what does the general counsel of SIFMA do? Well, a uh, great question, Sloan. And uh, I'll, I'll draw a, an analogy to, to football. You're at a big football school there at UT. So uh, sometimes I'm like the free safety on the on the football defense. And I can kind of go where, where the action is. There's a lot going on at SIFMA literally every day. We file literally hundreds of comment letters uh, each year. We are active on so many different pieces of legislation. So there's no way that any one person can be up to speed on literally every aspect of advocacy, be it regulatory advocacy or legislative advocacy that we do. But as the general counsel, we're keeping an eye on our uh, relationship and interactions with the regulators the uh, uh, quality control aspect of the comment letters that we file, working very closely with colleagues who are lobbyists, focusing on legislative areas, working with our communications area, which uh, engages with the press through press releases, through uh, interviews uh, and the like. And then just as a company, you always have issues involving litigation, uh, that the company might be involved with keeping the minutes of board meetings and executive committee meetings. So there's a, a lot of traditional general counsel work as just being the, the GC of a, a company or a trade association. Do you have a regulatory philosophy that you carry into your job, given kind of the breadth of regulatory matters that you end up involved in through SIFMA? That's another great question, Sloan. And, and I think I do. And a lot of that comes from the 35 years that I've been exposed to interacting with regulators from different countries, 
Uh, Clifford Chance, who I referenced earlier, was an inter- is an international law firm. And uh, I've had the opportunity to sit in meetings with regulators from you know all across the world. And what I would counsel my law firm clients and what our SIFMA members certainly know, but I uh, often remind them, is that the, the regulators, uh, they hold a lot of power. And we need to be deferential, respectful, cordial in our uh, dealings with them. And the best way for us to work with them is to provide data and information and kind of real-time reporting. I'll give you just a quick example with the pandemic that we're all continuing to navigate through in those early days of the pandemic. So kind of in that March of 2020 timeframe, we were having regular, even daily calls with uh, regulators to apprise them of what was going on on the ground from the member firm perspective. Uh, Who was able to go to an office? Who wasn't? Uh, Was that impacting uh, uh, trading? Uh, How are firms continuing to engage with clients if everyone's working from their home office? And the regulators were terrific and really valued that sort of instant dialogue and feedback so that they had that perspective to consider as they needed to consider, should they engage in regulatory relief? Many of the rules and requirements still required manual signatures on documents and physical inspections be done. Well, that of course was uh, impossible, particularly early in the pandemic. So just a quick follow-up on your tradecraft. I'm curious, given that you have such a breadth of intersections with market and members, How do you decide which members to privilege and the issues you work on? And when you work with a regulator, like, is there a difference when you work with a market regulator like the SEC or the CFTC versus the Fed or OCC or international versus domestic? Like, how do you navigate all those issues? Uh, let, Let me first focus on kind of that member relations aspect of your question. And uh, as I alluded to, we have literally hundreds of members of SIFMA and different business models, different sizes, different uh, markets that they focus on, et cetera. And it's very important for us to do our level best to drive a consensus position uh, on anything that we do, whether it's uh, commenting on a a rule proposal, whether it's uh, lobbying, We're always trying to drive consensus among the membership, recognizing that every member is free to engage in their own advocacy in their own name. So if through our committee process and uh, we, we have, oh, I don't know, 30 or so committees and SIFMA is very much member driven. So what I mean by that is we rely on these committees, like a general counsel's committee, a chief compliance officer committee, an equity market structure committee, just to give you and your listeners some examples. We rely on the committees to provide us their input, their suggestions. We as SIFMA staff will try to drive a consensus view recognizing you may get different 
perspectives from those members, but it's very much driven by the committees, which is the membership. And then once we derive the consensus view of the committee, that's the view that we will articulate in our comment letters, in our press releases, in our meetings uh, up on Capitol Hill. To the second part of your question regarding how do you decide you know, which uh, uh, areas to focus on, like any organization, we have a board of directors to uh, report to and they keep us accountable. So every year we go through an exercise of developing our list of priorities for the coming year. Often that needs to be flexible and a bit of a moving target because as a trade association, a lot of what we do is what I would say reactive. We are reacting to what Congress is doing, what the SEC is doing, what FINRA is doing, uh, the Fed and all the long list uh, of regulators. So yes, we try to predict and anticipate what will be a priority when we know a regulator has kind of put a stake in the ground and said, okay, we're going to deal with regulation best interests. Well, okay, we know that's going to be a priority, but we often need to be flexible. And then, Scott, I think the third part of your question was trying to differentiate among the different regulators. And I think they're, you know, similar to what I, I said earlier, we recognize that regulators have different missions. You referenced the SEC and FINRA and the Fed, each of whom have different missions. So we need to be mindful and respectful of those different missions. You know, there are some regulators over the years that I've just known and kind of grown up with. So the SEC and FINRA come under, you know, that category for me personally, just given my background. But we have people who have worked at the Fed and worked at other banking agencies. So we've got a very talented uh, staff. They bring their diversity of experiences. And that's kind of what we tap into depending on who we need to face off with, what type of regulator, what type of legislator. Speaking of FINRA, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between SIFMA and FINRA and kind of what overlap there is between the industry and the self-regulatory organization. I guess what I would want to uh, hit right up front is these are two very different organizations. FINRA is a regulator. They are designed to provide investor protection. They bring enforcement actions. They pass rules. Little old SIFMA doesn't do any of that, okay? We're not out there passing our own rules. We're not uh, an enforcer. So uh, think of FINRA as a private sector regulator, but also think of it as like a deputy of the SEC. It's just a private sector self-regulatory organization. SIFMA, on the other hand, is a, a trade group, an advocate, for the industry. So we will be facing off with FINRA, trying to uh, share with them our views when they have a proposal on a new rule, but we are not similar to the mission of FINRA. The one area of overlap would be our members, but the missions and the focus is uh, very different. 
So let's uh, shift to the topic du jour, brokers. And we want to get your view. You've been in the profession for a long time about how that landscape's been shifting. And I think a good place to start is, can you just tell us what a broker is and in particular what a broker dealer is and the difference, if there is one? Well, I didn't realize we're going to get into like law school type stuff, Scott. This is fascinating. I probably, I don't know how well I did in securities regulation in, in law school, but basically a broker or a broker dealer is e effecting a transaction in securities. And if you're holding yourself out to the public as someone engaged in that business, you need to be uh, registered as a broker dealer and regulated. And, and I should say, and you of course know this and, and Sloan knows this, the brokerage industry is an uber highly regulated industry. We've touched on some of the regulators when we've talked about the SEC and FINRA. You've got an intense level of state regulation as well. Uh, so the, um, the, the brokerage industry and the exams, the enforcement, the audits, the controls, and even the private sector dispute resolution mechanism called arbitration is so robust when it comes to the oversight of the highly regulated broker-dealer industry. So tell us, like when I thought about a broker when I was younger in college, I thought this little shop down the street that had like five or six people sitting in it that you went in and if you wanted to trade stocks, you went and talked to these people and they helped you do this transaction. I don't think my students think of the brokerage world that way. They think of their Robinhood app and that's how you trade a stock. And I just wanted to hear from your perspective, like how have the demographics from the retail perspective of brokers changed uh, over the past like 20 or 30 years? I guess a couple of thoughts that come to mind there is first, and I think this is wonderful. I think there's been an increased professionalism of the brokerage industry and the example of a broker like like you just uh, gave. So over you know these many decades have really upped their game in terms of the professionalism, the credentialing, the studying, the following of various uh, investment disciplines involving uh, diversification and a lot more so than 20, 30, 40, and 50 years ago. The, the other kind of observation I would make is when I think of the SIFMA membership, the overwhelming majority are regulated as both broker-dealers and registered investment advisors. So now I'll come back to your reference with your students. And uh, you mentioned the Robinhood app. There are other uh, apps and so forth. And I think it's wonderful to provide investors choice. And part of that choice is some may choose to do it themselves. And they've been doing it themselves, you know, maybe since the buttonwood tree in the 1700s. Uh, they, they know what they want to buy. They know what they want to sell. Uh, they do their own research. And, uh, you know, that's the way they want to do it. Totally fine. You'll have other people, and I'll probably put myself in this category, 
I, I got a busy day ahead of me. I don't know that I'm going to be able to focus on what to buy and sell and when to do it. I'd like someone giving me advice. So I, I think, you know, preserving that choice, that was a big part of our messaging with the uh, Reg BI fiduciary debate. And that's probably core on a lot of the uh, SIFMA advocacy. So you, you said a lot. We want to unpack some of the things that you said. And I want to start with how you mentioned that many of your members are what we call dual registrants. So Richard, both as a broker dealer and also an investment advisor. And can you explain how that came about? Because in the olden days, you had broker dealers that charge commissions and, and uh, investment advisors who kind of help manage your money and charged fees. And now that's kind of blurred. Like, how did that all come about? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, look, we, we, we could spend uh, uh, too, too much time going through all of the yeah, 40 plus years of history on, on that particular topic. But I think for where we are today, recognizing that you have registered investment advisors who, if you want to give them discretion to manage your money, and they will act as a fiduciary in doing so, and they don't have to consult with you before they buy or sell a security. You're basically giving them a power of attorney to invest on your behalf. To your point about the dual registrants, you go into a dual registrant firm. Remember the old Burger King commercials? Have it your way. You can have your financial advice and your financial relationship in whatever way you want. And there could be multiple answers to that question. You can want it multiple ways. So you can have a relationship with a dual firm and say, okay, this segment, this portion of my assets, I am entrusting to you in your investment advisor arm, subject to a fiduciary duty, and I'm giving you full discretion to manage this portion of my assets as you see fit. You've already had me fill out a questionnaire about my risk tolerance, my time horizon, what other assets I have, but I am giving your asset management arm full discretion over this segment of my assets. So can I just interrupt you for a second? So this is Ira Hammerman, who's a really smart guy. He's a GC of uh, SIFMA. He knows all about markets, but he's super busy. So Part of his portfolio is, please just take care of me. I know that you know you have my best interests at heart. You're going to make good decisions for me. But at the same time, maybe I have a brokerage account because I do like to buy stocks and trade them every once in a while and you know make a bet and you know follow a hunch. And it's another part of my portfolio and I'm under a different set of rules um, than the investment advisor. So you mix and match. Exactly. Then there might be a third bucket, Scott, with, let's say for my safety money where I want to sleep at night and not worry about uh, whether the stock market is up or down a thousand points in a day. Let's say I have a laddered portfolio of municipal bonds. Okay. And uh, there's not a whole lot that I do with that. It's kind of buy and hold. And I've got bonds that mature in two years, three years, four years, and five years. I don't want to give that money to the registered investment advisor arm that's going to charge me pick a percent you know one percent just for easy math one percent asset management fee i just want to buy those bonds pay for them on on day one and then i keep them in my uh, brokerage account 
Well, your your comment about not wanting to necessarily pay these fees for money management kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask, which is, to what extent have apps and these robo-advisory services like the Schwab Intelligent Ones, Wealthfront and such, have they started to replace humans, both broker-dealers and investment advisors? Good question, Sloan. I'm not going to comment on individual uh, firms and what their offerings are, but just let's let's keep the 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 main thought there which you know i'll i'll paraphrase as you know will the uh, will the robots replace the humans will the intelligent uh, portfolio artificial intelligence and again i'll come back to my basic premise of preservation of choice so i think it's wonderful that if someone wants to first get in to investing and and saving for their financial future if the way that they think is best for them is this type of, as you say, ro- robo advice where they, they fill out a questionnaire and then the uh, provider puts them in a uh, portfolio that other similarly situated people are in and they're able to do that at a small uh, fraction of the cost of a different type of money manager you know that that's uh, that's totally fine, and maybe that's a way that some people will first enter the investment uh, world, and then as their income increases, as their assets grow, uh, maybe they reassess and and think, okay, maybe I want to keep some of my uh, assets in this so-called robo advice, but you know what? Uh, maybe now I also want to talk uh, to someone and and add to my investment. A relationship and have more of a personal advisor and someone to, to talk to and that sort of thing. So moving on from that, I wanted to begin talking about the other main topic today, regulation best interest. And I wanted to start by just asking you, what are your thoughts on Reg BI today? So I guess first I would want to give credit to former SEC Chairman Clayton for getting Reg Best Interest over the goal line. You know, as was referenced in one of Scott's question about this whole topic of brokers and advisors and fiduciary duties, uh, we as an industry, as securities practitioners, have been debating these topics for a very long time, for literally decades. And there have been other SEC chairs who recognize the importance of trying to wrestle this issue and make progress on it. But uh, uh, Chair Clayton really got it over the goal line. He preserved the ability to have a regulated broker-dealer provide episodic advice to a customer who says, okay, I'm thinking about buying X security. What do you think, broker? Do you recommend that for me? Or not even going to the broker with a specific security in mind, just saying, okay, I just uh, inherited a couple of bucks. Uh, I want to put it uh, for my financial future. I've got a kid going to college in 12 years. What do you think I should do with the money, broker? Now, under Reg Best Interest, it is uh, crystal clear that the advice 
that the broker provides needs to be in the customer's best interest. Early on, there was a call for the SEC to use the same term, fiduciary, when describing what the standard of care should be for the broker providing the advice, like in the example I just gave. And I think Chairman Clayton handled that challenge very well, recognizing that if you subjected brokers to the same fiduciary standard as investment advisors, you risked bringing in and uh, having apply all those years of history, court cases, interpretations that apply to one business model of registered investment advisors, you risk importing all of that baggage, I'll say, onto the broker-dealer model, which is a different model. So just to you know, kind of jump in for a second, you know, to the average retail investor, I think they often get confused with these different terms that are being used, like a fiduciary standard versus a best interest standard. And I think most people who think about a fiduciary duty think, well, that should be in my best interest. And you keep using the word episodic. Is that the key difference here where the standard of care should be the same or similar, but the difference is a broker does it only at the time that they're talking to the client, whereas the fiduciary standard of investment advisors are always doing it, even when they're not on the phone and they're sleeping at night and they haven't talked for a month. The investment advisor pings them and said, hey, this has happened. Uh, let's have a discussion. I, I think that's right, Scott. And, and the word you, you didn't use in teeing that up, which I think is important, is monitoring. Right. So we talk a lot about monitoring, which is exactly what you just described when a registered investment advisor subject to a fiduciary duty charging the customer one percent. Again, that's just my example. I realize there are fees that are higher and lower than that, uh, but charging the customer one percent uh, of the assets under management. And why are you paying that amount? Because you're getting constant monitoring review advice, worrying, that is the uh, at the core of that investment advisor customer relationship. Whereas yes, with the brokerage model, it can be more episodic. It's not ongoing. And when the customer has a question or asks for advice or a recommendation, then wholeheartedly, the broker is obligated to give advice that's in the best interest of that customer. So uh, one question I have for you is whether you miss the suitability standard compared to Reg BI and kind of why or why not, why you do or don't uh, kind of like that shift from suitability to best interest and whether it achieved its intended goals. The suitability standard was a very robust standard. And again, as I alluded to earlier, this is a highly regulated industry we're talking about. There are constantly eyeballs on every transaction that is entered into, whether it's internal compliance, whether it's the regulators like FINRA or the SEC. So even the suitability standard was a robust, strong standard. But as I say, I like the fact that our industry has increased its professionalism over these many years. 
And I think the move to a best interest standard is a further tangible example of upping the bar, increasing the the obligation and uh, making it crystal clear that when a broker is providing advice, uh, it needs to be in the customer's best interest. And that's going to be a, a slightly a higher standard than uh, suitability. So I think it's it's a good move. You know, we've we've had it in implementation for a little more than a year, as I recall. As I mentioned, it was a big deal to get this final rule over the goal line. And I think we should continue to learn from it, get guidance from the regulators like the SEC and FINRA who are conducting exams of the brokerage firms to see how the rule is working. And look, in the future, if there are suggestions to further uh, improve it and again, further uh, uh, move on the uh, professionalism continuum, uh, that's certainly something we would want to discuss with with folks and and, uh, are ready to explore. So let's you you alluded to the looking forward, see how things are working out, and let me just make the observation that a former guest of ours from last year, Barbara Roper, who's been a very strong proponent of the fiduciary rule, came on and explained her reasons on this show. She has now joined Chair Gensler's staff as a senior advisor. Does that mark a a shift or a signal to what might happen in the Reg BI space? I think they're going to let well enough alone and allow more time for monitoring? Do you have a view? Well, first, I've known Barb for for many years, for decades, in fact, and uh, kudos to Chair Gensler for recruiting her to to join his senior uh, team. She's been a a tireless advocate for uh, consumers and investors, and I'm sure her uh, guidance and perspective will be well received as part of Chair Gensler's uh, team. Through my many conversations with Barb over the years, I think uh, she recognizes that no regulation is perfect and that there are challenges even in the existing investment advisor regulatory space. So this isn't a case of, you know, brokers bad, advisors good uh, sort of thing. She, she recognizes and she knows the history and she's examined the uh, challenges that exist on the advisor front, which, as we noted earlier, that's the group that is already subject to a fiduciary duty, but does not have an SRO like FINRA providing exams or enforcement. That's a group that historically has not been examined by the SEC on any type of a regular basis. So the, the the regulatory landscape is constantly evolving and changing. And I think the, the Reg BI step, while not perfect, it didn't provide SIFMA everything that we wanted. It didn't provide those that want, everyone called the fiduciary exactly what they want. But I think it was a good, tangible step. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the 
app side of the brokerage industry back to the Robin Hoods of the world. And the SEC recently issued a request for comment, and I'm going to have to read this because I can't memorize it. It says, broker, dealer, investment advisor, digital engagement practices, related tools and methods, and regulatory considerations and potential approaches, information, and comments on investment advisor use of technologies. Uh, so a really long title. Can we just call that the gamification request for comment? You don't like long SEC titles? I think it was very descriptive. Look, I, I think what the SEC is getting at is they want to have a much broader discussion about digital engagement practices. So I, I think uh, that that's why they've uh, coined that new term, DEPs, digital engagement practices. And I think that's a good topic for the SEC to be exploring. I think they ask something like 90 questions with literally hundreds of subparts. So we, we've got our hands full right now trying to comment on their uh, request. And, um, you know, hopefully they will consider and, and, and read and review probably hundreds of, of comment letters that they'll ultimately get before they decide what, if any, changes or, or modifications to make. M many times in our industry, it's a different tool or technique being utilized, but the underlying regulatory regime is sound enough and elastic enough to cover that new tool or technique. So it may be that a lot of the digital engagement practices don't necessarily require new law or new regulations, but it just would already be covered by current rules on disclosure of material information, how to handle conflicts of interest, and things like that. Do you see an issue with, I'll, I'll say, the gamification-like digital engagement practices on trading platforms like Robinhood? And kind of where do you think that this balance is between making trading fun and user-friendly and accessible to all, but ensuring investors are adequately informed of risk and actually understand what they're doing and the products they're trading in? Well, again, great question, Sloan. I won't talk about Robinhood specifically, but let's just talk about investing is not a game, right? This is serious stuff. It's great that and maybe, you know, the younger people and again, the kind of students that Scott was referencing earlier, maybe that's their first uh, entry point uh, into uh, the stock market and investing. But it's important even at that first entry point that they understand the risks involved. You could literally lose everything that you invest, whether you're investing through the app or otherwise. They, they need to have disclosure uh, so that they understand these, these risks. The digital tools, whether it's the app or a website, can be very helpful in providing education to the customers on, you know, everything from diversification to uh, options trading to trading on margin, you know, pick whatever topic you want. And firms can be using the digital uh, means to educate customers and make the important uh, disclosures. But uh, at its core, even if the investor and the typical younger investor is putting in smaller dollars, 
dollars to start, the risk of losing it all is something they should understand from the get-go. And, you know, to that point, when you're younger, and certainly I made some mistakes during the dot-com crash, but those mistakes were not costly. And in hindsight, they were educational. So getting younger users investing earlier in many ways can you know, can help them learn when the consequences are much larger than waiting, you know, 10 or 15 years before they invest for the first time. And I, I think sometimes that message has been lost. And I, I don't know if, if you have a view on, you know, the trade-offs of letting investors make mistakes and having them do so earlier in their career. Look, people will make mistakes. I, I have a little cheat sheet from my investing uh, history over these, uh, I guess, almost 40 years. And I remind myself of the mistakes that I made. So it, it's funny, Scott, you referenced the dot-com. I, I bought my one and only IPO was in something called Webvan. Have you ever heard of Webvan? They were the predecessor to Amazon. <laughs> Amazon yeah, won. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon won. It was buying groceries online. Can you say Instacart? But at least back then, uh, it totally flamed out. I lost every penny. But to your point, it was you know small potatoes and it was a, a learning lesson. But I certainly learned that you can lose everything in a given investment. So look, I think it's great, the, the democratization of investing, uh, getting to people younger, maybe with small, you know, look, years ago, again, Scott, to this theme of the evolution of the industry, years ago, it literally cost you hundreds of dollars in commissions to buy whatever, 100 shares of IBM or whatever the uh, the, the stock was that, that you wanted to buy back then. So this notion of making investing accessible to all is wonderful, but equally important is making sure that everyone understands that the risks are real and uh, markets uh, go down just like they can go up. And sometimes they go down a heck of a lot faster than they go up. Uh, so I think regardless of the business model, regardless of the profile of the investor, making sure that uh, disclosures are, are clear and uh, risk disclosure is clear. Uh, we, we can't lose sight of that. And to the contrary, this digital engagement practice maybe can improve. You know, people people watch whatever videos and TikToks and this and that. You know, if we can find other ways uh, to connect, particularly with the younger set and make them understand the risks associated with investing, the benefits of diversification. You don't put all the eggs in one basket, things like that. Uh, maybe we can use these digital engagement practices to improve the educational piece as well. So you've been giving some very good GC-like answers to our questions. I just want to press you a little bit on the gamification in one dimension, something that I think the SEC is probably struggling with. I know it was something that when I was there, we struggled with, and that is behavioral economics. It's kind of a squishy area, but I think it's true that most people, when they go to their phone, they see a little red dot next to their app. They just can't help clicking on it. I know that's true for me and all other people. And it's like when you think about smoking and nicotine and now the digital addiction of clicking on buttons. And what does a regulator do about that when the science is evolving? It's not very strong. It's not 200 years of Adam Smith economics guiding us. And what does the industry do in acknowledging that what millions of people recognize is something that's true? How do you incorporate that into regulation? 
So look, that's a great uh, question. You know a lot more about behavioral economics than I do. But just as you put out that question, I'm thinking in my own mind, yeah, you're kind of right. I'm, I'm one of those guys that'll click on the app if I see a, a, a red dot or that there's a notification just because, you know, I, li- I like things clean and I like to stay current. But you know what, Scott? That could be a good thing. Let's say that red dot is from my brokerage firm reminding me that it's the first of the month and I've wanted to uh, invest uh, whatever, $300 a month in a particular stock as part of my automatic uh, investing or it's a reminder to me to do something. I like that. That's a good use of a a, a digital uh, notification like that. Now, on the flip side, if I click on it and the red dot is, you know, badgering me, you know, uh, the, 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 the moving average of this stock has hit a certain threshold and you should get in now. Well, then I think we're going to be in this Reg BI conversation that we just had a few moments ago. And the question that the regulators will focus on is, what's this level of engagement, even digitally, between the brokerage firm and the customer? Is this digital engagement rising to a level of making a recommendation that the customer act and engage in a transaction? If so, we could be talking about Reg BI. On the other hand, is the notification, like my example, hey, Ira, you said you wanted a reminder on the first of the month to put in a couple hundred dollars in a particular investment. So I think it's it's fair game to examine. And again, I think that's great that the SEC's put out this concept release and hopefully they'll get information and perspectives from from everybody. But I, I don't think it's necessarily a negative, the fact that there's this sort of digital engagement between regulated firms uh, and their customers. So you mentioned this kind of question of whether that notification and like the content for the notification rises to a level that would re- require trigger regulation. And I want to ask a similar question, but for another kind of vein of digital engagement, which is, so in the midst of the rise of this retail trading boom, we've seen a growth in the popularity of so-called financial influencers who will post about hot or trendy stocks on TikTok, Twitter, and other platforms. And my question is, is this the type of financial advice that should be regulated to some degree, given these people are making more than junior bankers their age actually working in the industry? So look, in some respect, you get what you pay for, right? So if you're just going to be relying on some so-called influencer on, on TikTok or Instagram or whatever the vehicle is, you know, don't don't come to me crying when you get burned on on something. Uh, I'd, I'd much rather see people uh, getting uh, professional advice from a regulated entity, be it a brokerage firm, an investment advisor firm, the robo advisor example that you gave earlier, or the human that's, uh, you know, intimately familiar with uh, you and your history and your family and your risk tolerance and your time horizon. Now, you also put your finger on a question I don't have the answer to, but a, a good fair question to ask is whether some of these uh, so-called influencers uh, need to be or should be regulated uh, themselves. I think by the question, the assumption is they're they're not regulated. They're just exercising, you know, free speech, uh, First Amendment stuff, kind of sharing uh, their 
views on, on something, but while while that is protected, maybe there's a, a level of engagement or I don't know how they get uh, compensated or what relationship they have with, with people, but there, there might be a fact pattern out there where they cross a line and they themselves need to be uh, regulated. So on the, you know, kind of on the theme of the changes to how the brokerage industry is working, can we shift and talk about payment for order flow? What is it? Why is it so controversial? I mean, what's the big deal in markets today about payment for order flow? So look, payment for order flow, I think the first thing to get out on the table is it is entirely legal, legitimate, you know, SEC recognized and approved. So I know sometimes terms kind of take a life of their own and people think, oh, you know, there's gambling in the casino. Oh, pay, payment for order flow, that, that's got to be uh, terrible. So th- this is something that's been uh, a- around for a-, a long time. We understand that Chair Gensler is going to be reviewing equity market structure, which we think is terrific. We encourage him to take a holistic approach in reviewing equity market structure just to make sure that if they make any changes, it doesn't result in in unintended consequences that would have broad ramifications. For example, with the payment for order flow, the definition is very broad. The SEC has long permitted it and recognized that payment for order flow arrangements come in many forms, including exchange rebates and wholesaler payments. So these sorts of arrangements can benefit investors, kind of the investors we were talking about earlier who invest on these apps by facilitating low or zero commission rates uh, for them, leading to greater access and democratization of the equity markets. So any market structure changes such as possible limitations or even a ban on payment for order flow, you know, should take these benefits into uh, account. So I think it's part of a, a broader topic of equity market structure, and presumably the SEC will be looking at this this whole area. So I've I found it interesting because you think broadly about payment for order flow, you you basically just have a broker dealer that goes to a broker like Robinhood and says, hey, you know, I'll pay for your order flow. There's a spread with those trades. Let's internalize them, not even send them to an exchange, and we can execute them at a lower cost. And you know, we'll we'll give you part of that spread. And the question is, you know, how much of that spread do you then give back to the customer? And the way online brokerages have done it today is by making the trades for free. And then what I find somewhat surprising is that like this is getting a lot of focus, perhaps because retail investors are involved and people are wondering whether there's some harm there. But then for a very long time, ever since Michael Lewis's Flash Boys book, there's been this other arguably bigger dollar value issue, which is how orders are routed. And as you mentioned, maker-taker models, paying for order flow for big institutional investors that can have significant and costly uh, price impact. But that's been, you know, somewhat muted, not part of the debate. And I'm wondering, you know, in your view, is the attention focused in the right area? If you're worried about payment for order flow, should you be looking at where, you know, the potential consequences are bigger, even if it's, you know, not retail investors? No, I think that's a fair observation. And I think that's why once the SEC does take a look at it, we hope it's more of a holistic look so they get into some of the areas that you're suggesting as well and not just focused on retail uh, payment for order flow. 
And along those lines, I don't recall what SIFM's position was or if they had one on the transaction fee pilot. That was something that was done to allow the SEC to study what the effect was of fees by bucketing stocks into different fee categories where you could only charge certain levels for certain stocks. And the idea was to run an experiment on the market to see what the effect of those fees were. And that was that was struck down in the courts uh, as, you know, experimenting with companies in a way that the SEC shouldn't. And so I'm wondering if, if you, or on behalf of SIFMA, have a view on to the extent that the SEC should, SEC should be running experiments and trying to figure out the effects of these things, even if it does come, you know, at some cost to the market and figuring it out. Was that the right decision of the courts? Should the SEC be able to experiment with pilot studies like this? Do you have a view? Well, look, I, I, you're right in your, your summary, and, and my notes here reminded me of uh, that June 2020 D.C. Circuit decision, which overruled uh, the SEC rulemaking. So I'm not going to comment on, on the ins and outs of, of that decision. Look, there, there are occasions where conducting a pilot uh, study or, or a test case uh, uh, does make sense, but I guess we need to... Uh, uh, working with our regulators, be it the SEC or others, need to make sure that whatever that test pilot might be, it's not being done or doesn't have as a consequence a, a shock to the market to determine whether additional regulation is, is needed. But I do think pilots or test cases do have a place so long as they're carefully crafted and considered. So this was a case of it just crossed the line of what might have been appropriate, but otherwise the concept of doing a pilot study makes a lot of sense. Is that a view that you think the market holds generally or members hold generally, or uh, is that a, an IRA view? I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll limit this one to an IRA view of something that just uh, seems uh, logical and not ascribe it to SIFMA. I, I'll give you like the disclaimer you used to give when you were at the SEC and, and would give uh, talks. So those are my views, not necessarily SIFMA or our members. So speaking of payment for order flow and order routing, I want to touch on briefly a related topic of off-exchange trading. And I know Gary Gensler has made remarks about his concern about the volume of activity that are taking place off of lit markets. And I wanted to get your thoughts on these dark pools and the role they serve in capital markets and kind of whether they affect market efficiency in terms of discovering price? Yeah, uh, good question, Sloan. And again, we, we appreciate Chair Gensler's interest in equity market structure generally, including the off-exchange trading. As you all know, many large money managers such as mutual funds and you use off-exchange venues to avoid information leakage or tipping off of market participants about their trading activity. So similar to my comments on the payment for order flow, we just want to make sure the anything the SEC looks at is conducted in a holistic manner and properly considers how all pieces of the current structure fit together, including the benefits of off-exchange trading for both retail and institutional investors. And in whatever the SEC looks at, we want to make sure their review is data-driven so in this regard, the chair's regulatory agenda indicates the SEC is contemplating updating Rule 605 of Reg NMS, which requires market centers 
including off-exchange venues, to prepare monthly reports on order execution quality for NMS stocks. And we at SIFMA are currently discussing the modernization of Rule 605 with our members with a focus of having reports produced under an updated rule that would better reflect the price improvement and size availability that is not captured in the reports produced under the current rule. You bring up a a good point, and I think in the academic literature, there's not a consensus on what the right percent of trading volume has to be on lit markets for markets to be efficient. And if there's a right number for off-market, clearly in the dark pools, you have big institutional investors that want to cross without price impact. And doing it off exchange is an efficient way to do it. But the the right percent of what needs to be on the lit market to make sure the off exchange transactions are efficient, you know, I think has been a long debated question. It's spanned, uh, you know, a couple of decades now. And so maybe the solution is in revisiting a rule like 605, which has reporting obligations to collect more data, to be able to answer those types of questions. It sounds to me like the industry thinks that is the right next move so that you don't damage markets by making a decision that's not evidence-based. I think that's a, a, a fair summary. Yep. So, so you've been with us for a long time, Ira. We really appreciate you uh, uh, taking the time to visit with us and talk about a lot of these important issues that I think most of our listeners and people generally don't fully understand. I think it's helped quite a bit. And I'm going to defer to Sloan to asking the last question. Yeah, thank you. So finishing where we started, where do you see the broker industry in five years? So uh, I'll continue this theme of adaptability and improvement and professionalism of the industry. I think we will continue down that path, particularly as we talk about providing advice to retail individual customers. I think uh, preserving that choice and recognizing that there are people like we talked about today who just want to do it themselves. They want to do it uh, fast, efficiently, fair pricing, don't necessarily need to interact with a human. And that's fine. We, We want to preserve that ability. But for others or even those people, as they mature, evolve, have more assets under their uh, control, uh, they may want that hand-holding, that personal relationship with someone who knows them, who can help guide them when there's a major market disruption. And uh, the advice provided by that human being with the support of digital engagement, with the support of all sorts of analysis, I, I don't see that going away, Sloan. And I think five years from now, you'll have even closer relationships built between financial advisors, particularly these dual registrants that we talked about that have every license and alphabet name after their title and their customers. So I think advice isn't going away and hopefully there'll be a next generation of younger people who see the benefits of coming into the securities industry to help others plan for their financial future. Ira, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Scott and Sloan. Great to be with you guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please consider telling others about it. Our student production team is busy preparing for a continued great lineup of guests in the coming weeks. Today's program with Ira brought back many memories of my regulatory days. 
Part of my job then was to meet with industry members and hear how regulations, or lack of them, were affecting their business models. Trade organizations were critical to channeling their views. Any constituent can come in or write in and give a view, but there's a collective action problem with everybody trying to come in on their own. It's costly for everybody to make the effort, and in the end, just to repeat the views and positions of what everybody else is saying. A trade organization can query members, balance the views, and help present them to a regulator. SIFMA is one of those organizations. They're expert in channeling the views of the industry members they represent. Of course, some today view that as a problem with regulators captured by industry and industry having undue influence over the rules governing financial markets to the detriment of everyday citizens. I do believe that many voices are often underrepresented in government. In fact, at times, I believe, as an academic, that I belong to a class that is often underrepresented in their views. And many of the learnings from high-quality research can be ignored. And that is true of all administrations and likely to be true for this one, too. But what does not diminish is the value of trade organizations like SIFMA. I never had a problem when I was still in government understanding and disentangling the incentives and motives of different parties, and there's nothing wrong with having motives and expressing your interest to decision makers. The job of the regulator is to balance those views and to make informed decisions and appropriately weigh the costs and benefits of those decisions. It was great to have Ira on to talk about his views and the general views of SIFA and SIFMA members on controversial topics like payment for order flow and regulation best interest. Don't be surprised if we hear different views on these topics in coming episodes. Thanks again for joining us. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the UT Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's student executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr in the Moody's College of Communication. (laughs) 